0: Well, this morning, um, uh, this is a little bit of a weighty message and uh, one I have had growing in my heart for a while, one that has been a subject of much discussion amongst the pastors and one that finds opportunity for expression on the heels of some news that I would need to share with you this morning as well. As Jeff mentioned, most of you would know this, but if you knew, you may not know that, that we are a church that is a part of a family of churches. Sovereign Grace Ministries is about 67 churches, um, and we have the privilege of relating to them. We connect with one another through a team of leaders, men who give oversight to those churches. And the last week and a half or so has been a little bit of a, a grievous um, time for some of us. As we've related to each other, because one of our sister churches has gone through a season of, of difficulty. A Metro Life Church in Orlando, that we are rather close to, um, has faced a situation where one of their pastors has been disqualified and they've had to ask him to step down because of the sin of adultery. Um, and what makes this a little bit closer to home and more difficult in relating and and caring for the folks that are involved is that individual uh, was Jeremy Jones. It was Danny Jones and Melody Jones' son. And uh, they have been obviously facing a very surprising and disappointing situation. Um, Contact with Danny and, and Melody has shown God's grace in their lives as they have walked through this season with their son and his wife Um, Jeremy has made a public confession of his sin. And he and his wife are both committed to working through their difficulties and saving their marriage and working on their marriage and receiving help and grace from the leaders and the pastors that are there. He will no longer be a pastor. Um, This is a situation, I believe, that's been handled with a great deal of care. Folks who have been involved... Uh, As many of you would know, Brent Detweiler, who is part of the Sovereign Grace leadership team, who gives oversight to our church, also gives oversight to the church in Orlando. And he has been involved throughout the process, giving counsel, walking with the decisions that have been made there with the local leadership team and how that should be handled. The situation, I think, was handled um, caringly for Jeremy and his wife, Kristen, but also caringly for the church, and the integrity of the leadership there as well. And there's always a sensitive balance there. You're walking with people that you care a great deal about. Uh, I care for all the pastors that are there serving and on staff. Uh, Uniquely, Jeremy would be Danny's son. But in no way was there any difference in how this situation needed to be handled because of the seriousness of it. And, you know, I shared this with us this morning. This does not involve us locally but it involves people that we are walking with. It involves care that we give to them. I, I hope that we all find ourselves on occasion in our own prayer times praying for the other churches that we are joined together with, that we are furthering the gospel together with, that we pray for leaders that are in these other churches. And I'm sharing this this morning, and I'm actually going to share just a little bit more detail about it during the message today. Um, at the the permission of all who have been involved, Brent, uh, Danny, Jeremy as well, this gives an opportunity for us, and the Bible gives room for this. I think it's more meant in the context of local church relationships, but there is a spillover of relationships that we carry. I would want us to be praying for Danny and his family. Uh, He is a dear, dear friend to us. And there's just a lot of hurt going on in the family as they heal and walk through this. I would want us to be praying for them. The Bible talks about when an elder sins, that there is a correction process that has an element to it that is public. And the intention for that is that others would be sobered by those dynamics. And these are sobering dynamics. When someone that we respect someone who has walked with God, someone who God has used, faces a sin situation and they stumble, it brings sobriety to all of us. And it should. It should should launch us into prayer for others, but it should also launch us into an element of self-introspection, looking to ourselves. There would be a a uniqueness here that, that does not exist only in that setting. This is not just an over-there issue. I think mean, the issues that were part of leading to this issue are issues that are present among us, issues that we have to face. There have been a couple of situations in the last year of teenage pregnancies here for us that we have had to walk through and seek to repair and deal with a great deal of regret that has come to those in our own midst. We are, we are not exempt from the effects of sin touching any of our lives. And there's a little bit of a soberness, and we have been discussing the issue of the world's influence on the people that we are given to care for, as well as just the church in general. These issues sober us because we are seeing, and this would be another example unusual, how do I say this, unusual success of the world's intrusion into the church in our midst. Uh, It is a testimony of the grace of God for me to be able to say, I believe if I'm remembering and heard correctly, I think this would be the only the second pastor in the history of Sovereign Grace Ministries who has been disqualified because of adultery of all the churches over the last 25 years and all the pastors involved, Um, it would not be common for us to be dealing with situations where there had been teenage pregnancies. These are unusual days. But they're informing days and they're sobering days because they tell us something about the climate that the church finds itself in in this hour. And it brings attention to us as to how careful do we need to be in how we live our lives. Decisions that we make that lead to these opportunities for sin to come and touch our lives and people that we love. How careful are we being? This is a good opportunity for all of us to take a careful look at at what are we doing And we've been doing some of that just as a pastoral team. What are we doing as a church? How effective is this being? Where are the breakdowns? Where are things not happening well? Where do we need to get fresh insight from God? Where is there a a breakdown in the protection that God would have? And these are questions that don't just belong to pastoral teams. They belong to fathers who lead households. They belong to all of us who are part of a community here. You know, Living in New Orleans has has provided an interesting illustration for this, and it has to do with the hurricane scenarios that we face. We live in a dangerous place, don't we? And we're more aware of that now than we've ever been aware of it. Katrina provided for us an opportunity to reassess everything that went into New Orleans being a safe place. Now, let's be honest. It had been 40 years before some major event like this had happened. Betsy was the last major scenario to hit the city. Forty years. You know, a a lot of casualness creeps in over 40 years, doesn't it? And people who were saying, we better be ready, we better be ready, we better be ready. And who were drawing concerns about shrinking wetlands and questionable levee systems. And were making all kinds of noise about that. Now, pre-Katrina, up until a couple of years before that time, how many of us were just sick of the naysayers? Over and over again, telling us the city's going to be under 20 feet of water if this happens. If this thing comes this way and it hits the city, this city's going to be under 20 feet of water. Well, it wasn't until the city was under 20 feet of water that some people stood up and said, Wow, we better reassess what we're doing. We better fund some things. We better actually spend some money. On this, we better make this a priority in our lives. Now, it's unfortunate that sometimes catastrophe has to touch our lives before we'll pay attention. And as one of the pastors who cares for you and cares for my own family, my own walk with God, I don't want there to be catastrophe that has to be the thing that fixes us. Let's, let's get fixed before there's catastrophe. Let's get fixed before we're living in this pond of regret in our own lives about the decisions that we've made. I'm going to do a couple of messages this week and next week, I think just probably those two. And the title of these two messages will be Coastal Erosion. This week the point would be Coastal Erosion, when the church loses separation from the world. Now, everybody's familiar with the term Coastal Erosion. You've heard that term. you know a lot about it if you live here. And what's interesting is it provides for us a bit of an illustration about something that happens in the spirit, and where we live right now affords us an ability to see it. You know, coastal erosion is about that, that barrier of separation that the city of New Orleans has between itself and the Gulf of Mexico. The wetlands between us and the Gulf provide this, this buffer zone, this ability for storms to be slowed up in their impact by the time they get to us. It provides for us a sense of safety, a sense of protection is offered in this distance that's there. And the more we lose the coastline, the closer we become to the Gulf of Mexico. And, of course, the, the claim of the scientists is if you lose that coastline, And the Gulf of Mexico is at the doorstep of the city of New Orleans. You won't be able to keep the water out in the day of a storm surge. Now, what's interesting about the city of New Orleans, and it's interesting about the church as well, is the city of New Orleans gets its existence and its significance historically as well as presently by its proximity to the Gulf of Mexico. And inland waterways. What makes New Orleans a city that it is, is that port dynamic to it that places it near waterways and near the very thing. The very thing that it needs is the most dangerous thing near it. And in an interesting way, that's kind of the way the church is as well. It's because the church is called to be very near to the world. Part of our function is evangelism. Part of our function is to be light to the earth. Well, you you can't do that by retreating and moving away from the world. You, You have to have contact with the world. And so, just like New Orleans has a strategic nearness to the Gulf of Mexico, the church is called to have a strategic nearness to the world, yet at the very same time, it's called to be separate. From the world, it's called to be wise in its proximity to the world, and I think there's a severe breakdown in keeping the balance of those two things. And quite honestly, I'm just be really ugly and honest. Some people are close to the world for all the wrong reasons. I'd love to say everybody who's close to the world has got their evangelism cap on, and the reason why they're so close and rubbing shoulders with the world is because they are trying to rub the gospel off on the people that are around them. That would not be the case for the vast majority of Christians. The vast majority of Christians are not in danger because their evangelism puts them close to the world. The vast majority of Christians are in danger because their desires and their appetite puts them close to the world, which makes it even more dangerous. So we, we, we have got to learn what it is to be strategically close to the world, yet separate and protected from the world all at the same time. I put this statement in your outline. The church is being harmed and becoming ineffective in her mission because of ignorance or casualness about her proximity to the world. The church is being harmed and becoming ineffective. what, What we are recounting today are individuals that we love dearly and our hearts are heavy for them in our own midst where there has been sin that has come in and intruded in and made an impact on families. And and we feel the burden for the impact that sin has brought. Harm is being done to the church. But not only harm to the church, but harm to its mission as well. We are here on a mission. It's not one of us who are here just because there's nothing else to do and there, God didn't have room yet in heaven. He's waiting for a room to get cleaned up so he can call us home. We're here on a mission to accomplish something, to glorify God in a unique way while we're here. So, both individuals in the church that God loves are being harmed. And the mission of the church is being harmed and ineffective because of ignorance or casualness about her proximity to the world. How do you get around the world? How do you do that, Christian? Have you thought about doing it? Thought about your attitude? Thought about what you need to be prepared for when you get around the world? Or do you just drive up and park next to it and get out of the car? This is this thought from J. C. Ryle. Pastor, I always love his thoughts. He's writing in the mid to late eighteen hundreds. He says, I appeal to any old Christian who keeps his eyes open and knows what is going on in the churches. Now, this little quote in there is my question. Does that characterize you? As I read that, something irritated me about the way he said that. That he had to appeal to a small segment in the body of Christ who would be keeping their eyes open and knowing what's going on in the churches. Now, that's a sad thing, but I think it's a commentary worth paying attention to. How many of us keep our eyes open and know what's going on in the church? How many of us know, not only in this church, which would be very important for us to know, how many of us are keeping our eyes open? In the church world at large, how many of us are keeping our eyes open and we know what's going on? Is the church doing well today? Is the church in America flourishing or floundering? Do you know where the potholes are? Do you take interest? Does it bother you? Do you get under the weight of it? Do you pray about it? Do you have a concern about it? Or are we, have we become like uninvolved country club members? You know what it is to be an uninvolved country club member? Right? I'm an uninvolved country club member. We, we, we're a part of a country club uh, so that my kids can swim on a swim team. I don't care about that club at all. I, mean, I have to be honest with you. I hope nobody here is like, on the board of that club or something. They, they sent a mailer out the other day, and they always send it out news. And, you know, like most country clubs, they're always trying to raise money, improve this, get this thing going on. And They they sent out this thing for people who would, would be interested in sitting on the board of the country club. And I, I just realized as I read through all this stuff how much I don't care. <laughs> all these improvements are taking place, you know. I don't care. Big. Go ahead. Just can my kids swim there? That's all I'm interested in. And unfortunately... That's how some folks are involved in the church. They don't know what's going on. They're not invested in what's going on. They don't take interest in what's going on. It's gonna come, pay a few dues, you know, look around, stuff's happening, that's nice. But there's no heart involved. There's no weightiness. Listen, this is the body of Christ. This is the church. This is the most important enterprise that ever existed on the earth. It is God's means of redemption upon the earth today. Do you realize the seriousness of the task that's been assigned to this gathering? This should be the most important thing any of us pay attention to in our lives. Everything that goes on in our lives individually is simply the the cell structure for the body of Christ. Christ. Don't fall in love with the cell structures. Don't fall in love with, oh, it's just me and my career. Oh, it's just me and my spouse. Oh, it's just me and my family. It's just me and my segment. This is the piece of the pie that belongs to me. Oh, I'm sure there's stuff going on out there, but I don't know what it is. Pay attention. There are problems in the church world today. There are some things next week that I'm going to have to warn us about, That I'm about... 90% sure. Most Christians would never notice. But they're there problems. And they're problems that we're taking in and we're ingesting. J.C. Raw goes on and says I ask him whether it be not true that nothing damages the cause of religion so much as the world. It is not open sin or open unbelief which robs Christ of his professing servants so much as the love of the world the fear of the world, the cares of the world, the business of the world, the money of the world, the pleasures of the world, and the desire to keep in with the world. This is the great rock on which thousands of young people are continually making shipwreck. They do not object to any article of the Christian faith. They do not deliberately choose evil and openly rebel against God. They hope somehow to get to heaven at last, and they think it proper to have some religion. But they cannot give up their idol. They must have the world. And so after running well and bidding fair for heaven while boys and girls, they turn aside when they become men and women and go down the broad way which leads to destruction. They begin with Abraham and Moses and end with Demas and Lot's wife. So these are particularly sobering days when you see that it's those who are growing up in the church who are having a difficulty fending off the world and its lures and its values. The church, we are not safe from the impact, the coastal erosion dynamic that is bringing the ocean of the world into our midst you know coastal erosion is that that combination of saltwater intrusion and wave action constant steady wave action but but the philosophy of the saltwater intrusion it happens slowly over time any of you grew up fishing in southeast louisiana you know what i'm talking about you remember when you drove out to your favorite fishing spot when you were 10 years old And you drive out there when you're 30 or 40 and you go, wow, where did all the land go? That saltwater intrusion just over time and consistency seeped in and undid. And that's what the world is doing in the church. It is seeping in and it is undoing. And it will seep in slowly and unnoticed. And it will begin to affect decisions and how you posture your life. Let me read to you. Jeremy was kind enough to write down his confession and share it publicly. And he did so with the desire that others would benefit from mistakes and sinful choices that he made. Just a small segment. He says this, For many years, I have begun patterns in my life that I thought were insignificant and a normal part of life. Can you hold on to those phrases for me? Things that we will think that are insignificant and a normal part of life. Be very careful what you call normal. In a world that is moving, normal moves with it. Normal is not what it was 20, 50 years ago, and it certainly is not what it is biblically. I now see much more clearly and am beginning to see these areas of sin are not just significant but very serious and have led me to this place of unfaithfulness to my wife, family, and local church. Deep seeds of sin in my heart that gripped me in ways I was blind to. And this is, this is what makes this message kind of hard for me to conv- be convincing the issues that are probably needing to be addressed in our lives are the ones that right now aren't coming to mind. It is only in the last week that the light of truth from God's Word through the help of my co-laborers and family have helped me to see how deeply rooted my sin is and how deceived my thinking has been. I share these things with you not just so that you know some of the facts that you in any way feel sorry for me. I share this with you because I want to be known by you and receive your forgiveness. The patterns I spoke of before have recently brought me to a place of such self-absorbed, self-centered selfishness, rampant pride, deep roots of worldliness, lies and deceit, and I willfully begin a relationship with another woman. As I mentioned at the start of this message, this, this is not a message birthed out of Jeremy's situation. It's not inspired by unique situations. It, it is a message that the other pastors will tell you we have been discussing for quite some time. This is, this is just another example of concern. But we have been dialoguing and praying and expressing concern about the infiltration of worldliness in lives that we are aware of here in this church. And when I listen to Jeremy's confession and when I recognize the way in which sin operates in the Bible, what we are trying to sound the alarm at this point is, is for those who are standing in the foothills of future sin. No, no, you're, you're not committing adultery. You're, you're not trapped in some severe, gross sin. But you are in the foothills of it, where deception operates and influence over your desires is beginning to shape what you want next. And deep-rooted issues are beginning to be formed. The time to be warned is now. The time to do something is now. Deception will bring you to a place at some point where you no longer want to do something. And when you get to that point, it's very hard. It's very, very hard for anyone to reach you. And it's very hard for you to want to be reached. Deception has done its work. And and I'm, you know, I feel when you preach a message on worldliness, I feel a little bit like the, the hurricane scientist. You know, the guy who keeps saying, the city's going to be underwater. The city's going to be underwater. If you don't do something, the city's going to be underwater. And eventually, messages about, be careful, church, be careful about living in the world. Church, it begins to sound like background noise of the guy who says, the city's going to be underwater. The city's going to be underwater. See, if, if it's been 40 years since the city's been underwater, it's hard to get our attention, isn't it? Now, I've got to tell you this morning, what can I say to get your attention? How can I say it? How, how many more have to live in regret? Some of you here know. Oh, I can have you come up and testify. Where you walked down a pathway of decision making that led to destruction and great and costly sin that you now live in the shadow of great regret. I said, I think this young man who's been disqualified from that which he wanted to invest his life in doing the damage that's been done to his family. That We don't in any way overlook that God is gracious and God is restorative and God is redemptive. But there are consequences to our actions that are real and lasting and impacting. And those consequences will be taken up in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. what, What can I do this morning? What can be said to make us listen I trust the Word of God is sufficient in itself to inform us and to awaken our hearts where we need awakening. Turn to Second Corinthians chapter 6. I want to hit two issues this morning about how it is that we are to be strategically located near the world and yet protected from it. And the two things I want us to learn are to be separate and to beware. Be separate and beware. Look at being separate first. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. And please notice the tone of these. These are not dialogue. These are not suggestions. These are commands. We live in a world today that doesn't like commands. We like to talk about things. We like to discuss them. We'd like to, we'd like to take some of God's ideas and, and have a think tank and, and have a discussion group and ask questions like, well, how do you feel about what God said there? Really, how do you feel about what God said there? Do you understand this is a book written by a king? It, this, this is not... This this is not a parliament. This is not Congress asking for some ideas. This is the king of glory. And he is speaking with authority, with commands. He's not asking you to consider. Would you consider this? He is commanding you to do something. Verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now he offers an explanation here, but that's the command. Do not do it. Are you doing it? If you are, then you need to stop. We can talk about why this is wise, but the command stands by itself. If you are unequally yoked with unbelievers, if you have fashioned and forged relationships that have crossed the separation barrier, that there's no coastline between you and those individuals then you have violated the Scriptures. You are unsafe, you are unprotected, and you are disobedient to God. And you are in danger of inheriting the consequences of that disobedience. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? This This is an explanation of the absurd. That's what this is right here. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, with the devil? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. Now we'll come back to this point next week, but please notice why this statement stands emphatically. It's got nothing to do with your culture. It's got nothing to do with the time in which you live. The reason why this statement stands emphatically because of who God is. He says, I will make my dwelling among them. Here's why you're to be separate. Because I'm going to make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch No unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Why is it that there is a call for separation? It is because of the righteousness of the character of God and his demand that his people would be a place of his dwelling. Now listen, we may be comfortable with the muck and mire and stench of our sin and therefore we can design churches that allow all that to take place if it's a church for people. But if church is a place for the dwelling of the presence of God, well now you have a different construction on your hands. And who God is determines who the church is to be. Not who we are, not the age that we live in, not the way the culture is. Who God is determines who the church is supposed to be. And so God calls us to be separate. As I said before, this, this is not a call for the church to become monastic in its practices. We're not gonna, Instead of building churches, let's build monasteries. Let's build communes. Let's build communities with gates around them where the church, when you get saved, you come live here and you never have contact with the world anymore. That, that's not how the Bible calls us to be. Unfortunately, that's how some people have tried to create this pattern. It's a wrong pattern. We can't escape the tension that we're called to be strategically near the world. We're called to do that. If you're trying to create a pattern of life that rescues you from all contact with the world, you're living an unbiblical pattern. You cannot be salt and you cannot be light to the world if you won't have contact with the world. Now, I realize the world, when we have contact, it, it presses against us and it produces danger for us and for our families and for our churches. It does. If we're going to go into the world and have an impact on the world, it's going to reach back into our worlds, and it's going to want to mess our world up. The remedy to that is not retreat from the world and have no contact with it. That's not a remedy. That's not what we're called to do. Mark 16, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. That's a mandate. Now, as you go, these scriptures should inform us. Philippians 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish. Where? In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. That, That that is a very full description of the church. Involved in the world. See, we are in the midst, we are shining lights among them, but we are holding fast to the word and we are remaining without blemish and blameless and innocent. There's a tension there, isn't it? Because the world wants to stain us. If you get the world soaking into you, you're going to become stained by the world. So, in some way, something of the church, something of the teaching of the church, something of the practice of the church, something of the life of the Holy Spirit needs to scotch guard us in the midst of the world that we live in, so that stains don't penetrate who we are. See, that's where the world becomes a problem. When the world penetrates who I am and gets absorbed in me, and you can begin to see that the coloration of the world is appearing on me now. That takes penetration, and it's because we've become unwise and uninformed. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Romans 12.2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. James 4.4, 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. First John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. If you and I are going to be strategically near the world, we better be very aware of the nature of the world. Be separate From the world be informed do not be ignorant about what is in the world Do not think that you can become casual about what's in the world Do not think that you can treat the world as though it is a neutral element in the world Our existence is touched by the world. The world is not neutral It has an agenda It is full of deception It is moving in a direction and it is seeking to take you with it It is always doing that it doesn't have a holiday. It's not a day of the week that it takes off. It never stops seeking to claim ground in the believer. And you and I need to be aware of that. I think I put this in your outline. Without biblical knowledge, we may be prone to treat the world like a worm rather than a snake. Icky, but not deadly. See the difference in attitude? You walk out the front of your house one day, Walk down the sidewalk, and, you know, like all of us, there's a worm on the sidewalk. I don't know how you respond to that. Usually they're fried by that point. But there's a worm on the sidewalk. At best, at best, right? And then your neighbor comes up, and you walk past the worm. There's a worm right behind your heel, and you're just talking to your neighbor. It's a worm. Let it be a snake and see if you do that. How many of y'all walk by a snake and go... Uh, just keep walking. I mean, you pay attention. You walk, almost step on it. And then your neighbor comes up. You turn your back on the snake. just stand there and talk to your neighbor. Hey, how's it going? Did you know there's a snake right behind you? Yeah, so what? No, when you see snakes, most of us run back in the house, right? Eah! Scream, freak out. We're paying attention. Where did, where did it go? We're watching it. See, so this is the attitude that the believer needs to have toward the world. The world is not a worm. It's not just a few little icky practices that we kind of don't like and care for. It's a snake. It's dangerous. It's venomous. At any moment, it could strike you. Keep your eye open and be aware. There are some who are lacking bib- biblical knowledge. They've become casual about their association with the world. There are others, and I'll address this for the next week, that have become missional, term missional is used as the desire to reach the world. The church is called to reach the world. So there are churches today that are to be commended and applauded in their passion to reach the world. There are a segment of those churches, not all, but some, who have closed their eyes to the truth of reaching the world while remaining separate from the world. And they have created an immersion theology That immerses one in the world in order to reach the world. I think Dave Harvey, who serves the Sovereign Grace leadership team, says this very well. Missional teaching on culture also tends to be flawed with the assumption or explicit teaching that the culture is neutral. There's a casual, undiscerning recklessness about approaching culture that doesn't recognize that culture has swallowed more Christians than Christians have changed culture. Now, from the seats that we're sitting in as pastors, amen, Dave, you are exactly right on. I've seen the culture change more Christians than I have seen Christians change the culture. You'd better be armed with what it is to be separate as we engage the culture. Secondly, be separate and beware. Hebrews chapter 3. Turn to that passage. We looked at this a little bit a few weeks ago. A little different element of the same passage. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. It says, take care, brothers. New King James says, beware, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, these two passages are very informing. You have one passage, be separate, informs us about the environment in which we live. You have this passage here, be where, informs us about ourselves. There is a problem with the environment, but there is a problem with us being in that environment. Matthew 26, Jesus says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. There are elements described in those two passages that inform us Who are we as we engage this environment called the world? Inherently, the flesh is weak. This thing that we're draped in, that we experience life through, it is weak. Inherently, it is weak. It has that condition in it. There's a broken flawedness to the flesh that makes it vulnerable to sin. And then if you dig around a little deeper inside of the flesh, you find out some of the things that are in us, you find out this this heart is susceptible to becoming evil and prone to unbelief and it can become hardened that that's the properties of what you and I are dressed in we we bring this event this thing this house we bring it next door to the world and the world is armed with all that it's about I guarantee you, I mean, this is an issue of ignorance for us. We don't know enough about ourselves, and we don't know enough about the world. We're not paying attention carefully enough, and we're not biblically informed. If I gave you a bucket of water in one hand, and I gave you a bucket of gasoline in the other, which would you be more careful with? Would you set the bucket of gasoline just anywhere? I'd set the bucket of water just about anywhere, but would you set the bucket of gasoline just anywhere? Maybe next to your hot water heater in the garage. That'd be an interesting event, right? Maybe out by the campfire. All gathered around. Just set the bucket of gasoline down. See, the properties of that would dictate to you where you do and where you don't put it, wouldn't it? Because you know this bucket is combustible. If I get it around the right stuff, it's going to ignite and go up. Well, that's, that's an accurate description of how the Bible portrays us in the natural, in the flesh. We're combustible. If you place us around the right thing, we will combust. You will get ignited. There will be a fire. Sin will find its way into a combustible exchange in your life. In your outline, it says the anatomy of combustion. Weakness and indwelling sin remains in us. There is fuel In us, if you get it close to the match, it will go up. Proverbs 6.27, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Can can you get close to sin and you not be set on fire? No, you cannot, because you are not in a glorified body. You are not exempt from temptation. You do not have a lack of appetites for the wrong things. You have that in you. James 1.14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's what's in us. Now, when you couple that with the reality that what's operating around us is deception, it is, it is a stealth operation. It is designed to not let you know it's operating. That's what deception does. So when the world reaches into the combustibleness of my life, it it doesn't send off signal lights. There's no warning that it's coming. It doesn't advertise that fire is drawing near to me. It doesn't tell me that. It's, It's operating in stealth. It's operating in deception. And so it's drawing near without any form of advertisement taking place until it gets to the place where it can now ignite the very desires that were inside of me all along and i'm going to combust how, how does how does one go from loving god following christ living towards the kingdom into these sins of great regret well, this is how. That's the anatomy of how it happens. The way deceit operates and what it has in us in order to reach in and touch that we need to be much better informed about. Now, I want to spend just a moment before I close here looking at a man named Lot. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 13. Lot is going to illustrate for us, unfortunately, a man in an unwise proximity to the world, who didn't know himself well enough. Lot, his story is told a couple of places. Look in Genesis 13. Genesis 13, we find out Lot is a relative of Abraham. They've been traveling together. They've come out of Ur. And both of them are men of Enormous possessions and flocks and herds, a great deal of wealth in both of their lives. They come to a point where dwelling together in close proximity to each other is a problem because of just how much they both possess and some issues that are coming up between the folks that work for Lot and those that work for Abraham. Verse 8 says, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, then I will go in the right. Or if you take the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot, be careful attention to some of these words. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And the men of Sodom were wicked Great sinners against the Lord. Now, the the level of wickedness of Sodom leads me even at this point early in the story to conclude that I think that was known. The sin of Sodom was so great. You don't have any other city besides Sodom and Moor that get destroyed by God this way. No other city. And in a moment when you see how these men behave in this city, you're going to find out there was an incredible amount of wickedness here. And... And here is Lot. Here's Lot shopping. Lot is shopping for land. Lot's got something on the inside of him. Lot wants something. He lifts up his eyes, and he is desiring certain things. I see that. I see this. It's interesting that of the cities, there were cities in this valley. We find out later one of them was called Zoar, that he tries to flee to later on. Why didn't you live in Zoar? Why did you choose Sodom? At first, he just chooses the valley. And here's the progression of sin. He just chooses the valley. Nothing wrong with just the valley. Then he moves his tents as close as Sodom. And in just a moment, we're going to find out he moves into Sodom at some point. Lot, what were you after? What were you craving? What was your value system? What were your priorities? See, here's where it's hard to be the the church to each other. When someone chooses the valley, they're not just necessarily choosing to live in the heart of Sodom and become a part of the most sinful city in the world. They're just choosing the valley. It's at this moment where Lot's in the most danger because he's about to step onto an escalator and he's going to go someplace that he wished he hadn't. Now, you're Lot's friend, and you try to talk to Lot about his choice. But Lot's got some desire in him. I can bet he can justify why he's doing what he's doing, and he doesn't necessarily see any problem with it. But he makes a decision here. Turn over to Genesis chapter 19, as we see the rest of Lot's story unfold. Now let me let me give this warning to you before we just assign Lot to being some heathenistic, selfish individual. That well, that's what lost heathens do. The Bible calls Lot a righteous man. I put that passage in your outline, Second Peter 2. It says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Lot, why'd you stay? Why'd you remain? See, the problem with Lot was way back when he stood up and Abraham said, choose. That's where his problem began. There was something in him That he wanted, that the world offered, that he was attracted to. Now, chapter 19, this is the day that the Lord sends the angels who are come to destroy Sodom. Let's read a little bit of this. The two angels, verse 1, came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, Lot has gone from a guy who was interested in the valley to a guy who lived outside of Sodom to a guy who lives in Sodom to a prominent citizen now in Sodom. Sitting in the gate, he would have been one of the officials. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. This is, this is kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of like your pastor showing up and you're amongst some real heathens doing some stuff. Well, they're doing some stuff. Maybe you're staying out of it, but they're doing some stuff that the real question is, should you even be there? And you're quickly trying to say, come on over here. No, come on. over. Great create the You come on over here. That's what Lot's doing right now. Lot knows he's in a bad place and these two individuals are about to walk into that bad place and he's concerned for them because of the sinfulness of the people there. When Lot saw them, he arose to meet them and bowed himself. His face verse two and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. (laughs) Don't stay, no, get up early before the traffic hits, you know. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Now, Lot had a reason for pressing them strongly. Do not stay out in the open in this city. You have no idea how wicked these people are. Well, they're about to discover. Verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Your translation may actually say that they may have sex with them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters. Who have not known any man, let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. What a father. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now this is a dilemma for him because he is bound to protect these folks. But he never should have been there in the first place. He never should have been in a position where he had to offer his children up in order to protect others that he should never have been hosting there either. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. What, what has become of this man? Yeah, Peter tells us that his righteous soul was tormented, but he doesn't want to leave. We're about to destroy the city, Lot. Get out. And he's standing there chewing his fingernails in the room, doesn't know if he wants to leave. You don't believe in the sovereign grace of God. This verse should help you. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand and the Lord being merciful to him. You want to see what mercy looks like? It looks like when you don't want to go and God manages to accomplish it anyway. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. You remember the rest of the story here. As they depart the city... His wife looks back. See, this, this had become something to them. That thing that was in Lot that wanted to live in a certain place. That's why he lingered. There was something there, you see, that he wanted. And his wife, it was in his wife now. And when she looks, she's, she's being led away from destruction. The grace of God has come and has rescued them from Judgment. And instead of running away with tears streaming down her face, going, God, thank you. Thank you that you have spared me of being judged. She looks back at the city of what she's having to give up and turns to to the pillar of salt. Lot flees with his two daughters, escapes the judgment and destruction, but not fully. Because he takes his two daughters and sees His two daughters now have been corrupted by what they've been a part of for all these years. The two daughters conclude in their minds, everybody's dead. Our men are dead. People we've known are dead. And we're going to be childless. And they come up with this scheme. The two daughters come up with this scheme to get their father drunk. And on two separate nights, they get him drunk. And individually, each one of them sleeps with him. So they can become pregnant. And they give birth to two boys one called Ammon the other one called Moab if you follow the Bible the descendants of those two boys are going to be a real problem for the people of God the Ammonites and the Moabites will be the hostile individuals to the people of God throughout the rest of the Old Testament where did that come from well in a very real way it came when Lot lifted up his eyes so you understand, Abraham standing next to Lot, I'm sure, and saying, Lot, be careful, man. Be careful about you lifting up your eyes and what you desire. Why do you want to live there? Why? Sounds kind of like we need to protect the coastline. Oh, if, the, if the hurricane comes, we're all going to drown. It's going to be 20 feet of water. Oh. See, it's not until there's fire growing out of a city where God has judged that we stand back and go, Ooh, I bet we better take care of the levy system. See, we don't, we don't want to live in the day of great regret. We want to live in a moment where we can make decisions about our proximity to the world when that will serve us and serve our families, serve this church, serve the church here in the United States that we're a part of, across the world. Matt, go ahead and, and come up. Ken Hughes says, Lot's folly was this. Though the worldliness of Sodom vexed his righteous soul, he lived as close to the world as he could, hanging on to it for dear life until the bitter end. And the result was that through, though God judged all of Sodom except Lot and his daughters, Sodom was reborn in their very lives. We see then that it is possible for believing people, listen, for believing people like us who are truly distressed by the course of this world to live lives that are so profoundly influenced by culture that Sodom is reborn in the lives of those we love the most. Oh, is that a sobering thought for us fathers in the patterns of our lives and how we live? And have we set up tent too close to Sodom, Have we patterned our lives with a little bit too much proximity to the world? And now its influence is in us and it's in our children. When you study Lot's life, you see his unwise, this was an unwise decision. Was there anything inherently sinful in him choosing the valley? Was was there ever a Bible verse that that, that somebody could come to him and say, Lot, thou shalt not choose the valley. Don't you see that right here? But for Lot, listen to me carefully, for Lot, that was unwise. Mm -hmm. Because there was something in him that that close proximity to the world was going to mean his collapse and his demise. It wasn't sinful in and of itself. Can can you hear me say that? It was not sinful. This is is where the church falls to pieces. This is where people won't receive teaching in this area. Because what the church defaults to doing is saying, you see, thou shalt not live in the valley. And it makes a rule. And then people walk away and go, the Bible doesn't say that though. So I I can't do anything with that kind of teaching in my life. Listen, the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not watch TV. It doesn't say that. You're gonna to have to make some decisions about your life as to what is wise for you. Know yourself. Beware of yourself and be separate from the world. Or you will make one unwise decision after another one. And, and, and look at the fallout. Harm. Lot's family suffered harm. The mission of his life suffered harm as well. Does it strike you interesting that this righteous man who lived among Sodom, and on the night of great sin when they all came out against him, every person to a man came out. But didn't you at least have a little Bible study going on? There were six or seven guys. Do Do you remember Abraham praying for Sodom? Lord, if there's 50, would you spare the city? There's 40. Would you spare them? If 30 or 20? How about if there's 10? How many got out of Sodom? And they didn't even want to leave. What? What impact did your life have on anyone? They had a great impact on you though. This is not... Primarily intended to be a message aimed at those who are committing adultery or some loud, consequential sin. but Rather, it is primarily for those who are at this moment lifting up their eyes. Just looking and not being wise about what's in them. About where they want to live and station their lives and what they want to get around and what values are forming that. So I want the Holy Spirit to, to take this question into your heart. Lot built his life too close to Sodom. What are you building your life too close to? You bought into some passion for success. You're living a little bit too close to sensuality. You're not hooked on pornography and you're not committing adultery. But do you realize that you could be in the foothills of both of those? You are combustible. You set sensuality close enough to you and it will ignite you. And some of you will be ignited a whole lot faster than others. You... You need to know yourself. I'm concerned for this generation who is in love with thrills at all costs. You're building a little bit close to the pursuit of thrills. The only thing that you're into is what thrills you next. What thrill can you get next? You don't know how to say no to thrill, you don't know how to deprioritize it, you don't know how to say, I will not build a tent next door to thrills. Because thrills will begin to control my life. I'll become addicted to thrills. There are many possibilities. Materialism in this country is out of control. Do we want too many things? We're building our house a little bit too close to materialism. Some more young people here. You're building your life a little bit too close to finding acceptance. With the people in your school, you want to fit in. That's a big thing for you. You have moved. You've lifted up your eyes, and in you is a desire to fit in. I want to fit in. And you move right next door to where the sinners might let you fit in. You begin to move a little closer and a little closer. Listen, please notice this at the end of Lot's life. The people that he tried to fit in with, they turned on him in a heartbeat, didn't they? You won't give me what we want, we're against you now. We're going to do worse to you than what we would have done to them. Please know that is the rules that your friends play by. Use you until they no longer have use of you. Those aren't friends worth having. You don't want to be accepted by those folks. Let's stand up together. Holy Spirit, your work must penetrate beyond mere thoughts and concepts, or we cannot be convinced apart from your Spirit's conviction in our lives. So, Would you not just corner us with convincing, but would you appeal to us with conviction? But I pray right now some would be aware they're in great danger. They have not tasted the consequences of their decisions yet. Close to a day of great regret. I thank you for moments like these. I thank you for supernatural moments where you come and you speak to us and you get our attention so that that day never has to come. Oh God, thank you for the days that you have rescued us from by bringing the Word to us and illuminating our understanding and opening our eyes. God, I pray right now for grace for individuals here this morning to respond to You. God, I pray for forceful grace. Would You grab some by the hand? And if they linger, grab them and pull them anyway. Yes, yes, God. i like to ask for all who are here and you are convicted that you are living your life in too close a proximity to the world. I want, I want you to come out from where you are. I want you to have a serious exchange with God. I want, I want God to wrestle with you. And I want you to wrestle with God. And I want this day to be a day that was significant for you in those issues. So if you are here this morning, God has shown you you are too close. I want you to come out right now from where you are. Listen carefully to this verse. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And those desires, for many, are not desires for some gross sin. It's just a desire for something that's unique to you. Something very, very important. Something that reflects a value system that you have fallen in love with. It may not be some morbid sin. It may just be uniquely the way sin visits you. The things that have become very important for you to have and you've learned those things from the world and you've found value in them because of the way the world has described them to you. Anybody else that we need to pray for this morning? pray for two, in two ways this morning, pray for those who have stepped forward, I am more concerned for those who have not. As I listen to Jeremy's words, patterns in my life that I thought were insignificant normal part of life I was blind to. If you see the patterns, how blessed to not see them. How dangerous of a place to find yourself. Lord, I thank you for sobering moments. Lord, I do not apologize that every day in a church service is not our favorite flavor. It's not closing the service and we all feel like hopping and skipping out. I'm grateful for those days, Lord, but I am grateful for days as well when we are sobered We are serious and we are concerned. I thank you for what you're doing and the folks that are standing here right now on this altar who've humbled themselves and humbled themselves publicly, who recognize, and they do recognize by your grace, there is a place of need in their own heart. spirit would you penetrate the darkness that's in each heart and each life would you make today a day of breaking a day of revelation a day when your spirit came in with a fresh wind and blew out the dust and the particles and the things that have settled but would you come in with with the soberness that motivates us to have ears to hear and then would you come behind that with the wind of your spirit to put wind in the sails. Oh, Lord, I don't know where Lot was supposed to live, but Lord, we can only imagine what his life could have been. Lord, would you touch these lives right here today? Lord, start the life of what could have been in these categories. Whatever it is that's dominant, whatever it is that's influential, whatever it is that's owning these lives and distracting their view of you and distracting the great purpose for which you have called them. God, would you let today be the day when that changes Lord, where this pattern that was on its way somewhere is disrupted. And Lord, there's a new destination in their hearts. There's a new sense of purpose awakened for their lives. God, let there be eagerness. Lord, let let tears of departure. Lord, thank You that they don't end in the regret of Lot's life. Lord, let tears of departure. Let any thought of lingering be overtaken by the promises that you have made to these individuals, the purposes that you have for their lives, the reward that is awaiting their righteousness as it pursues you and follows you. And God, I pray for all who perhaps are here needing to respond, but unaware of needing to respond. Lord, what a a dangerous place. But yet, Lord, that is the environment we live in. It's full of deceit. And our own hearts are wicked. And we hide. We don't want to be found. Lord, would you grace us this week, Lord, as we walk through life. Would you bring Holy Spirit advertisement every time we lift up our eyes begin to desire and crave that which is going to lead us into destruction. Would you let us know where it's finding its place in our lives? Where we have not been aware? God, would you rescue us before our decisions begin to pile up the regret? Would you inform us as only you can? Holy Spirit, inform our lives.